I don't know how many of you may have uh, seen the news that there was a terrorist attack in Burkina Faso. Um, actually, at the uh, hotel and cafe that I was, I, uh, was at while I was there, <laughs> uh, stayed just one night in this hotel. We had moved from out where Joseph lives downtown because the airport is right downtown. And so we thought, well, let's stay in this hotel kind of get a sense of downtown, you know, while we're there, and then we're close to the airport the next day. And so we were there, and then this little cappuccino, or cafe cappuccino, was right across the street. And so it was a really nice little restaurant. Unfortunately, it was. I hope it will be sometime again. But um, So we went over there. It was so convenient and good that we just went there a couple of times, had several meals there, and uh, both those places were hit, uh, I guess, Friday. So wanted to just pray. Uh, several of you have asked about Joseph. Uh, Joseph actually is out of the country. He, was in, he is in Canada right now at a conference. So uh, he was not there, uh, nor was he, if he would have been there, likely that he would have even been close to any of this. And it does seem like, from what I have read, they were targeting Westerners um, when they were, uh, were shooting people. So... Just wanted to pray before we start for that situation. So, Lord God, I lift up uh, the nation of Burkina Faso and its capital city of Ouagadougou and uh, just pray for all of those who uh, survived this attack and for the families of those who did not. Lord, that your blessed presence would be with them. Lord, we just pray for your peace in this country. Let all that is evil be driven out. Continue to bless this nation, Lord, who is coming to you in large numbers. And continue to bless the work that Joseph is doing in being a part of that. And we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got sort of a provocative title this week for the message, right? Not-so-blessed assurance. So let me uh, begin, I guess, by explaining kind of what I mean by that uh, and do so by telling a couple of stories about two individuals that I think you may be able to relate to in one, in one way or another. And the first story is about a man named Thomas. Yep. <laughs> no, that's not it. All right, next. There we go. All right, just hang there for a minute. So, if there were a Guinness Book of World Records uh, category for the number of times uh, that someone asked Jesus into their heart, Thomas is pretty sure that he would be that person. He says that by the time he reached 18, he had probably asked Jesus into his heart about 5,000 times. Now, the first time was at age four, and uh, he lived in peace for almost 10 years after he did that. But one Friday night during his ninth grade year, his Sunday school teacher told the class that according to Matthew 7, 21, 2, and 3, Many people who think that they know Jesus 
will awaken on that final day to the reality that he never really knew them. Though they had prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, they had never taken the lordship of Jesus seriously. They would, his teacher explained, be turned away from heaven into everlasting punishment with the disastrous words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, Thomas was terrified. Would he be one of those that the Lord turned away? Had he really been sorry for his sins at age four? So he asked Jesus to come into his heart again, this time with a resolve to be much more intentional about his faith. He requested that he be rebaptized, and he gave this very moving testimony in front of the whole congregation about how he was now going to get serious about the word of God. Case closed, right? Wrong. Not long after that, he found himself asking again, had he really been sorry enough for his sins this time around? Thank you. He'd see some people, uh, you know, when they would go up front and they'd give their life to Christ, they would weep rivers of tears when they got saved. And he hadn't done that. So did that mean that he wasn't really sorry for his sins? And there were a few sins that he seemed to fall back into over and over and over again. No matter how many times he resolved that he was going to do better. Was he really sorry for those sins? Was that prayer a moment of total surrender? Would he have died for Jesus if he had come and asked him to right then and there? So he prayed the sinner's prayer again and again and again, each time trying to get it right, each time trying to really mean it. And he would feel for a moment like he really had gotten it right. And it would sort of bring about this temporary euphoric feeling. But then it would fade rather quickly, and he would begin to question it all over again. And so he'd pray again. He says that he thinks he's been saved at least once in every denomination. <laughs> His spiritual life was characterized by cycles of doubt, aisle walking, and submersion in water. Uh, in fact, he said that it got so to the point that it was embarrassing. He'd been baptized so many times that he had his own changing area at the church. <laughs> he could not find the assurance of salvation no matter how often or how sincerely he asked Jesus into his heart. And, you know, without even asking... I would be pretty willing to bet there are at least a few people here today who can relate to Thomas's story. If you can, what you're basically asking is, how can anyone know beyond all doubt that you are saved? So I'll sort of call the group that Thomas was a part of questioned assurance. Questioned assurance. 
Jesus may or may not be mine. <laughs> That's, I'll stop there. But there's another person who we're going to call Clint who has a different problem, perhaps the other side of this same coin. Now, as a young man, Clint prays to ask Jesus into his heart, and every indication was that he was very sincere about doing so. And we know that even if somebody is young, it's very possible for them to come to faith early in life. In fact, Jesus told the adults in the Bible to be like little children if they wanted to be saved. And further, Clint showed some immediate fruit after his conversion. He got excited about Jesus. He started to do things in the church. He started to tell others about Jesus. And that went on for a while until Clint gets a little bit older and he discovers sex. And he decides that he doesn't like God telling him with whom and when he can have sex. So Clint begins ignoring his faith and eventually becomes an atheist. But he believes things are going to work out great for him either way. Now if he's right and there is no God, then he hasn't curbed his lifestyle because of a fairy tale. But because Clint was brought up in a church that, teach, that taught once saved, always saved, he believes that even if the Bible turns out to be true and God does exist and Jesus is the only way, he's still good to go because he asked Jesus into his heart, even if it was a long time ago. So is he right? Can he, because of a decision that was made at some point in the past, live with the assurance that he is now saved forever regardless of how he lives now? Clint's group might be called deceptive assurance. Deceptive assurance. I think Jesus is mine, but he's really not. <laughs> so on one side we have questioned assurance, and on the other side we have deceptive assurance. And so when you kind of lay it out like that, neither position seems particularly biblical, does it? Is there a way to know that we truly have Blessed assurance, and if so, how do we get there? Well, I think the short answer to that is yes, and we're going to look at various elements of this over the coming weeks. But for now, just as sort of a tease into what we'll talk about in the coming weeks, here's what I believe Scripture says. Salvation does indeed happen in a moment, and once you are saved, you are always saved. The mark, however, of someone who is saved is that they maintain their confession of faith until the end of their lives. Salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony, and then you move on from it. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. 
In his parable about the different types of soil, Jesus spoke of a group described as rocky soil who heard his word and made an initial encouraging response of belief only to fade away over time. These are people, Jesus explained, who hear the gospel and respond positively to it, i.e., pray the prayer, get baptized, begin to serve, begin to, to evangelize and spread the gospel, and they remain in the church for a period of time. But like Clint, they don't endure when the false light of temptation or the heat of persecution comes out. And they will not, in the end, be saved. And we know <coughs> from further on in that parable that there are the people that are described as the good soil. So what are the characteristics of the good soil people, so to speak? Well, they too hear the word. However, they also hold onto it fastly with an honest and a good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. The Apostle John described a large group of people who believed in his name, but to whom Jesus would not commit himself because he knew all men. He knew their belief was temporary, a temporary fad probably based on the healing miracles that they were witnessing. But that, but that they would not endure the test of time. These sobering stories teach us that many are headed into eternal judgment under the delusion of going to heaven. They were told if they prayed the prayer, Jesus would save them, seal them, and never leave them nor forsake them. So... Let's look first, and, and this is what we're going to do today, is to look at this whole question of assurance. How can we be assured of our, of our salvation? And I guess to begin with, uh, in doing that, we have to address this question. Does God really want us to have assurance of our salvation? Now, some of you may go, well, of course, but there, you will find people who will say that he does not. They suppose that this kind of assurance is somewhat presumptuous on our part, if not downright arrogant. Furthermore, wouldn't God get more out of us by holding the possibility of salvation over our heads? The way an employee, employer might motivate a staff by threatening them with layoffs or holding back bonuses. Well, I believe that I can say with certainty that God wants you to have certainty about your salvation. He, cha he changes, he encourages, and he motivates us not with fear, but with the security of love. That's one of the things that makes the gospel of Jesus so completely different from all of the other religions in the world. In fact, I might be so bold as to say that your spiritual life will really never take off until you are completely assured of your salvation. Until you know that you are his and he is yours, your confidence will be shaky and your courage will be minimal. 
It's only through the assurance of love that we find the strength to endure all the manners of oppression, opposition, doubt, and trial. How can you stand against a hostile world if you're not assured of the God whom you are leaving it all for? How can you take up the cross if you're not convinced of your own resurrection? Can you really jump with abandon into the darkness if you're not convinced that someone is going to catch you? It's the joy of knowing beyond all doubt that you belong to God that makes all of those things possible. And in the same way, there are points that you can never pass spiritually until you are confident that Jesus will support the full weight of your soul. There are sacrifices that you will never make. There are commands that you will never obey unless you are convinced that they have eternal value. Following Jesus, after all, means saying no to a lot of things. To take up the cross means delivering yourself over to death. Death of control over your life. Death of your own dreams. We're releasing everything that we have to him. And that death is empowered only by the assurance of new life. And so you're never going to really have the courage to embrace the cross until you have the confidence that you own the resurrection. Let me say that again. You'll never have the courage to embrace the cross until you have the confidence that you own the resurrection. You'll never have the strength to say no to sin until you realize the unconditional yes that God has given you in Christ. One of the reasons that Paul was so unmoved by suffering and the persecution that he underwent in so many of his missionary journeys was that he was certain about where he stood with God. He said this, For this reason I also suffer these things. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. 2 Timothy 1.12 You'll never give up your life in radical obedience until you are radically assured of his radical commitment to you. Furthermore, if you're not assured of God's love for you, then your motivations for obeying him become corrupt. Not in an evil sort of way, but you'll do the good works of God, and you're, but you're hoping that he's going to approve of you because you're doing these good things for him. That's not really love for God. It's called self-preservation. Yeah, I'll do this, so don't hit me. Only, only the security of knowing that God has accepted you can free you to seek God for his own sake. 
apart from that assurance, God just feels like a slave master. And if that's the case, you will never love him like a father. That's what true obedience is. It's beyond merely adhering to a set of regulations. It's doing so because you deeply and truly love the one who is commanding you. Religion may command us to change our hearts, but it can never change our hearts. It can tell us to do what is right, but it can't give us a love for the right. Only confidence in God's commitment to you will inspire confidence in your commitment to him. Only joy in what you know you possess in him will enable you to leave everything else behind. Only knowing the love of God for you produces love for God in you. Well, I think Jesus knew all this. I think in particular, he knew how important it was going to be for his disciples to know and be assured of his love for them. And so in the final conversation that he had with them before he died, he used three metaphors to show them how committed he was to them. They were about to go through hell on earth. And if you want to know what that looked like, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that you could look at, but don't do so over a meal. Because it's not a pretty, what happened to these men was not pretty, let me put it that way. <coughs> but he knew that. And so he wanted to give them something to hang on to that's going to sustain them in this hour of tribulation that they're going to endure. And so, like I said, he gave them these three stories or three metaphors. And the first one was that he called them his beloved children. In John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A faithful father doesn't leave his kids wondering whether or not he loves them. Now, there was a period of time when my children were little that I was traveling to Milwaukee every week. It was a lovely time. <laughs> but when I had to go away, I didn't say to my kids, Daddy's going to be back soon, or maybe not. Maybe I'm really not your daddy at all. Maybe my real family lives somewhere else. So you'll just have to wait and see if I come back. Sit around and think about that while I'm gone. And let that compel you to become better children. That's not going to produce loyalty and love in, in a child. It might produce a little fear-based obedience. But it won't be long before that fear-based obedience turns into father-loathing rebellion. If I don't want my own children fearing that they might be orphans, would God? 
do you really think that we are better fathers to our children than God would be to his? Hardly. The love that God has for us is the highest in the universe. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Jesus loves us like God the Father loved him. And he wants us to have the same assurance with him that he had with God the Father. And so if the Son of God doesn't sit around wondering about his relationship with his Father, I shouldn't be worried about my relationship to him. When you become a Christian, you are actually placed in Christ and Christ into you. And just as Christ could never be cast out from the Father, neither can you. Now that is assurance if there ever was such a thing. But it doesn't stop there. The second metaphor he used was of his betrothed. And so in the same conversation that he's having with his disciples, he said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, a lot of scholars have noted that the language that Jesus is using in this particular metaphor is laden with Jewish wedding imagery. And you see, in Jesus' day, a young suitor would travel to his beloved's home, they would have a big party, and he would request her hand in marriage. Assuming that she said yes, he would then return to his father's home where he would begin construction on a room attached to the family living space. So when their place was completed, he would return for her. But before he left, he would promise her that he was coming back. <coughs> he didn't want her to worry. Because worry might lead to doubt. And doubt might cause her to be open to the advances of others. He wanted her assurance to be so strong that she would not be moved by the flirtations of others. See, in our culture, that assurance is indicated by the giving and receiving of an engagement ring, usually with a big fat diamond on it. <laughs> that is the indication that the potential suitor is indeed coming back. And if he doesn't come back for her, she's keeping that baby. See, this assurance not only gives the woman peace, but it gives her strength. She no longer is interested in the attention of other guys because she knows what she has in her fiancé. Jesus gave his beloved the same confidence. He spoke to us in wedding language so we would have the confidence of the waiting bride. And it's only in that confidence that we are able to resist the enticements of sin. 
And then finally, this metaphor of his friends. And so in John 15, 15, Jesus calls his disciples his friends. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Do you want your best friends questioning your loyalty to them? One of the greatest aspects of friendship is the feeling of safety that comes with it. Your true friends are the people that you can just be yourself around. You can say what's on your mind. You don't have to worry that they're going to start judging you or betraying your confidences or abandoning you because of something you might say. And so because of that, you can give them access to the most vulnerable parts of your life. And you're, you, don't, you can do that because you don't have any fear that that's going to be violated. And until you get to that point, <coughs> it's not really a close friendship, or at least it's not a very enjoyable one. True friendship only grows in security and trust. And we've likely all had a few friends who have uh, broken our trust at some point. You know, the people that you were never sure if they were guarding your reputation or trashing it. And if that was the case, then you probably didn't stay friends very long. The friends that you've developed the deepest bonds with are those that you know you could trust with your very life. Jesus wants us to be no less assured of his friendship to us. In fact, he said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. His commitment to friendship is not less than ours. It's infinitely more. Perhaps you've had a friend betray you or discover something about you that led them to reject you. Jesus never will. From the beginning, he saw it all, and he chose us anyway. When we revealed our worst side to Jesus, he bore our shame and consequences in our place. Friendship doesn't get any more secure than that. And so these three images show us for certain that God wants us to be sure. He couldn't have chosen three more intimate and precious relationships. We're his children, we're his bride, and we're his friends. And during that same discussion, he told his disciples to abide in that assurance. Because only as we abide in him, which essentially means to rest in that assurance, will the fruits of righteousness begin to grow in us. So to wrap this up, how, how can we find the assurance of a child, a bride, and a friend? You know, 
despite God's intent for us to, to possess that assurance, the assurance of a treasured child and a beloved bride and a cherished friend, it still seems to elude some of us. That's probably why in his first letter to the church, the Apostle John explored how believers can know, know, emphasis on know, that they have eternal life. You have to believe that this was a really, really important issue to John, right? I mean, he's the one who wrote those three metaphors, and he made this assurance the subject of the very first letter that he wrote to the church. And he ends this letter by saying, these things I have written to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. No. Not hope. Not be reasonably sure. K-N-O-W, no. how does he say that we know? We said this. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given us eternal life and that his life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so in those verses, John identified two components of assurance. One is belief in a testimony about eternal life. John uses the word believe 90 times in his gospel. He says that those who believe have everlasting life. And so believing the testimony assures us that we have eternal life. And the second thing he points out is that evidences of eternal life are at work in us. And that goes to the point that eternal life is, is not just this reality that we enter into when we die. And we've talked about that before. And if we believe that God's kingdom has come, at least in part, then that means that there's something to be had now, not just later. And so what John is saying is that its evidences kind of appear everywhere. Am I in trouble? Uh-oh. <laughs> <Not bad. laughs> Seeing those evidences is what assures us of eternal life. And those are two things that we're going to look at in more detail as we kind of move through this. Um, but for now, let's just leave it with the assurance of a treasured child, a betrothed fiancé, and a cherished friend. That's the assurance that awaits us. And so, in the interim, why don't we just ask Jesus now for the wisdom to understand what it is that we're going to explore and the faith to enter into it. Amen? I don't know what 
Pastor Potter is writing on his little piece of paper right now. <laughs> but I can tell you this, that um, during worship this morning, what I, what I felt like I heard God say was that God is going to reward all of you who brave the elements to come here today. Not that that was really that much of a challenge, but... <laughs> Um, cupcakes, <laughs> heavenly cupcakes, I like it, ah, cool, you want to come up and share? So what, um, what John has given me is that Karen got a word that basically confirms all this, so let's get her a microphone, can you? Well, but if you do, it won't be on the uh, recording. So that's why we need you to use this. God was, God was giving me this as, uh, as Pastor Jeff was preaching, and it just kept flowing, and so I wanted to try to write as much as possible. And he kept saying, this is for Jeff because he needs confirmation to know that what he's preaching is what I've ordained for this time. But he's already seeing that this is also the time for all of us to begin to move. He says, I love you and I love all these people, even when they don't completely follow me. This is the time to look to me, don't hold back your love, your obedience for me. My time is now, not later. I need you to work for me now. The war that is going on is in the spirit. Pray for the souls to come to the kingdom. Reach out for one now and I will accept, reach out for me now, and I will accept your hand. No strings attached, just follow me and I will give you what you need. Don't turn back, don't waver to bring in the harvest, the, cor the correction starts here. And it means here. We need to start too so that we can bring in the harvest. Receive my love, my salvation now. Rededicate your life to me today. I am waiting for you. As um, Jeff was speaking, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. There is not a need or want you have I will not give you if you do my will. Come to me as we walk together. Be blessed, be blessed, as I have blessed you from the beginning of time just for following me. And this saith the Lord. So just for following him, he's telling you, I'm blessing you. Amen. Your blessings are there. Just follow me. And it's time to start today. Mm. Thank you. I, I ran across something um, yesterday <laughs> that really... <laughs> it takes a lot to shock me, and this shocked me. And it was a, um, a, a pastor friend of mine had posted this on Facebook, and uh, it intrigued me enough that I, I watched it. And uh, it was a, uh, a commentator, it, it's Dr. Michael Brown, and I don't know if some of you may know who that is. He was a uh, uh, a, a big part of the Brownsville Revival. 
uh, down at uh, the Brownsville Assembly of God when it was taking place, and he was the director of their school there for a long time. And I guess he has some sort of a TV, maybe it's a web TV kind of show or whatever. And he comes on and he says, now, I'm not advocating any kind of a political position by showing this. He says, but I'm trying to just, because I've never heard such a ridiculous statement before in my life. And I, what struck me was that, 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 was that this level of ignorance is out in the world. I don't know, do any of you know who Kathleen Parker is? She's a journalist. Her, her columns show up in the, uh, usually in the Sunday paper periodically. I've always been a fan of hers. I mean, I, she seems like a very reasonable, reasoned, well-educated person. She actually has won a Pulitzer Prize. And she's on this panel on CNN and they're discussing Ted Cruz. <laughs> and she says, she, she's quoting Ted Cruz as saying that, you know, he, he said that it's time for the body of Christ to rise up. And I don't remember if he, if he said support him or support his campaign or something like that. She believed that what he was calling for was the physical body of Jesus to come forth and be part of Ted Cruz's campaign. She had no clue that the body of Christ refers to the church. <laughs> and if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I don't think I would have believed anyone telling me. So if you're curious, it's probably on YouTube. Just Google you know, Dr. Michael Brown, um, and you probably can find it pretty quickly. But it was an astounding statement. Had, Sally watched it too, and she just, just kind of looked at each other like, what? <laughs> you know, how can somebody in this day and age misunderstand that? So to me, it really spoke of the need for the body of Christ and the need for us to continue to push forward in the world and make a difference because as I said, this is a very well-educated, <coughs> bright woman who hold, is holding on to this belief and, and completely misunderstands <laughs> what, uh, you know, and this is in, by no means um, a campaign promotion for Ted Cruz. It's just the fact that he was the one that happened to say this, and that's what sparked the whole thing. Um, so I'd like to ask our worship team to come forward.